Hey, everybody. Today's guest is Jocelyn King from Virgil HR. And while HR tech is kind of a boring thing, Jocelyn's story is anything but. What do you think, Maurice? It's very boring until something goes wrong, right? And then you, you're going to see how boring it stays for you. Um, no, she's fantastic. She's fantastic. She seems to be an all-around pro uh, and super specialized in everything HR. I think she had like five other ideas. She only said like one, that she <laughs> but I imagine she could found like another two or three companies at least. And uh, it's also fantastic to have another female entrepreneur on the yeah. show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Show how much power there is and how much... Um, it's moving in that in that segment, right? In in that in that general range. So I'm I'm really happy that we uh, could break the boys club up and uh, have another female there to represent. And uh, yeah, it's super interesting. A lot of lessons learned, and um, all you have to do is um, watch it <laughs> and stay tuned. All right, here we go. Because really, what could go wrong once you press record, right? Exactly. What could go wrong? <laughs> it's all going to be very perfect. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of Crazy People Doing a Podcast. Crazy People Podcast. I am in chair number three, Russ Brummel over there, and chair number one, the captain of Curiosity, Maurice Hoffman. In the hot seat between us, I'm Virgil HR, Jocelyn King. Welcome, Jocelyn. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for, for joining the show. Um, so you are a... Um, a specialist in the HR environment. So give us a bit of a, of a background. How did you get there um, becoming an HR specialist? Um, what is it about HR that interests you the most? Sure. So I actually didn't know anything about HR when I went into it. I majored in philosophy, which really just meant I had no clue what I wanted to do. And I was recruited out of school by Target. And I was an HR manager in one of their high risk stores, like high crime community stores, and mm -hmm. saw a lot, uh, particularly on the employee relations side. Um, it was quite a bit. And uh, I got some great experience there. And after that, decided I wanted to dip my foot into recruiting a little bit, did recruiting at a tech company, um, and then moved back into HR and kind of uh, grew in my role as manager and then as a director. Uh, and then my first role as a VP of HR, I was a VP of HR for North America for a very large public uh, tech company. They had about 20,000 employees. Um, and it was pretty neat because even though it was a big company, I was the first employee that they hired in North America because they're UK based. So I got to build that company from one employee myself <laughs> to about six or 700 employees in 18 months. And it all happened during COVID. We were essential workers. It was totally crazy. But in a role as, as a generalist, which is kind of where I sit um, HR wise, you have every HR discipline kind of roll up into you. So it can be talent management, talent acquisition, total reward, DE&I, et cetera. Um, and, um, and a couple of those disciplines, compliance and risk management and employee relations all fell under me. And I found it really fascinating, especially the legal side to things. Um, these laws, employment and labor laws change 
all the time. They supersede each other. They run concurrently. There are thousands of them. And in that role, we were hiring in a lot of states very, very quickly. Uh, in that role and future roles, we were hiring a lot of remote workers in a lot of different states and ju jurisdictions. And so it became increasingly difficult to track and comply with employment and labor laws, particularly at the state and local level. Um, and uh, there was a really good solution out there. We were Googling online or talking to lawyers and coming from the tech background, I had this idea in my head for a few years about how we can automate that process and really automate that research process, information gathering process, and bring everything to the top to help HR make compliant decisions with confidence without them having to know what laws exist. Um, so two years ago, I started my company, um, and that's what we do, and we can talk about that in a bit. But what I really love most about HR is the fact that it's so multifaceted. You can get into all these different disciplines and then like sub-disciplines within them. And uh, it's really neat. You are able to um, kind of like act like the world is your oyster when it comes to HR. I think what makes HR most appealing um, to really any professional out there is the fact that people spend more time at work than they do at home a lot of the times. And so if we can uh, really support them and build programs and plans that make their lives better, then that's a really rewarding way of doing what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I, I totally believe that uh, about the HR area. The, the company, uh, my company, we are we are working in the uh, benefits and perks, how you would say that uh, from a US perspective, a field. And what I see in the HR field and um, kind of asking you to confirm or to, to give me your side of it is that a lot of companies are struggling with everything, the entire uh, empowerment of employees and the, the changing attitude and everything that kind of came post-COVID, this, hey, I don't want to work in an office anymore. Hey, I know that I have value for these companies now. And um, that, that entire mindset seems to be shifting and or has shifted. Um, what is your perspective on that? How do you address um, these different attitudes that seem to be out there? Well, I think it really depends on the industry that you're in. Uh, the way that you would address it in manufacturing is totally different than the way that you would address it in tech. And I'd argue that in tech, it's much easier to do that than it is in uh, an industry like manufacturing. Um, so I've always believed autonomy is key in uh, getting high performance out of people and higher retention out of your workforce too. Uh, and certainly uh, even before COVID, but definitely with COVID, there's been a lot of change from that perspective. People being able to work where they want to work, work when they want to work. Um, we are seeing though this attitude of entitlement that I think is very unfair to employers um, that exists. And uh, some of it's generational. Um, I, I definitely see kind of a younger generation having a little more entitlement in the workplace than some of the older ones. And I think every uh, generation is going to say that about their younger generation. Um, I remember people said that about us as millennials. Uh, but I see that quite a bit happening, particularly when it comes to uh, talent development, uh, this attitude of I deserve a raise, I deserve a promotion. I know I've only been working for three months, but I should be a director. 
you know, um, there's a lot of entitlement there. So balancing out empowerment with that entitlement is really hard to do. And it's a matter of being very transparent with pay, being very transparent with the way you handle the performance management and talent development process, um, and ensuring that there's fairness across the board. Uh, and then allowing people to uh, make decisions in an autonomous fashion, but also understand when they need to work together as a team. And HR can do a really good job of that by developing workshops, uh, by incorporating some of that into their talent management plan and even their compensation plan for that matter. So there's a lot that you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I, I got to say, maybe I'm lucky. Uh, I have two 24-year-olds and a 27-year-old in my team. And they, for all sense of purposes, they working their butts off, right? I don't see any of the entitlement there. I see an eagerness that they want to really get things done and really develop. And that they are thankful for any time that I invest in in their development, really. Um, maybe I'm lucky. Um, uh, but I've, I've, I've heard that a lot, what, what you described, but luckily I haven't seen it yet. Um, but then again, on the other side, what I've seen is I, I already know that I'm not going to keep them in the company for more than two or three years because then they're going to mm -hmm. move on and going to seek out the next level, right? Maybe um, that is that mix. So how do you, how is HR in, in the positions that you held? How is that different from, because I've, I've seen that you had like um, pre-seed companies and you went to big companies that were IPO'd already and they were established. So how does HR change or does it change at all really um, between those different company sizes? Yeah, it is very different. Generally with bigger companies, you're going to be more siloed, whereas at a small company, you're a department of one, so you have to do everything. Yeah. Um, usually you get more resources at a bigger company. You're less likely to get financial resources and people resources in a smaller company, of course, just means you're overextended. And what ends up happening is you just, it's much more difficult to be that strategic partner to your leadership team when you're overextended and you're working in the weeds on something payroll related, for example, mm -hmm. whereas at a bigger company, depending on the role you're in, you're definitely afforded more of an opportunity to be that strategic player because you're not overextended in administrative work. Maybe you're overextended in strategic work, but you still <laughs> have the opportunity to, to, to work on that. So mm -hmm. there are definitely some key differences. Um, some of them good, some of them bad on both sides. Um, my preference, I like working with smaller companies. I, I did the big companies and they were really wonderful experiences, but my personality works best with smaller companies. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Because you, there's more where you, you have more areas that you can touch or why is that particularly so? Um, in my case, it was because I could function more autonomously at a smaller company. You know, when I was working for a Series C tech startup, as an example, they had about 100 employees. Nice. I worked very closely with the whole leadership team, I had a lot of buy-in, I had a lot of influence, um, and I was able to not do what I wanted, but do a lot of what I wanted. Mm -hmm. um, there, was a, there was a lot of credibility there and therefore uh, some autonomy. Bigger companies, there's a lot of red tape. 
There are many layers that you have to go through to get approval on things. It took me a year to get a handbook approved, for example. Yeah. Um, with a small company, it's just however long it takes me to build it out. And then I have a lawyer look at it and I roll it out. So yeah, yeah. it's just different. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that. Uh, but I, I think it's it's funny. And that's what I see in my uh, in, in my profession is that indeed the smaller companies do not seem to have so much of a strategic approach to HR, which I think is unfortunate because especially smaller companies, um, also when it comes to compensation, for example, I think they need to have a strategic approach. Um, because it could solve a lot of their issues. Mm -hmm. What's your perspective on that? Absolutely. Um, you know, part of my goal just personally with my company is being able to pull HR professionals out of the weeds and not be so focused on administrative work. So they can yeah. be more focused on people's strategy, no matter the size of the business. You know, mm -hmm. small companies, it's very, very expensive when you lose somebody on the team and you have to hire a brand new person. And as kind of you've said, if you have the right compensation plan in place that motivates and retains people, um, the right benefits that are available to them. Uh, if you have a really strong, very strategic talent development program, that's what keeps people around when they understand what I'm doing is directly impacting the success of the business. And I want to grow with it. And they're allowing me to grow with it and try new things that I will say that with a small company, you can get, there's more flexibility to allow people to get involved in different areas of work. So that part is really nice, but, uh, but if you just don't have the right culture in place then it doesn't happen. Yeah. So ultimately what was the driver for you to start your company? And let's talk about your company a bit more. Uh, sure. Yeah. So, um, I mentioned earlier that I'd been thinking about it, this idea for years. Uh, I thought conditional logic programming was really interesting. That might be a way that we can kind of automate this process for HR. Uh, but quitting your job and not taking pay for two years wasn't on the table for me. And I finally did have the opportunity to do that. And the two founders are co-founders of my last company really bullied me into it. They had told them about my idea and actually two of my biggest investors. And they'd said, yeah. you know, you, you really have to do this. So um, I, uh, I ended up quitting and um, have a very supportive family. So I'm super lucky for that. We definitely had to make some adjustments to our way of life. Um, had to make a move, had to cut back on things, but it's been really rewarding all throughout the process. And basically what we do, um, I'd mentioned that it's really hard for HR to track and comply with employment and labor laws. And you're Googling or you're talking to lawyers and there isn't really a streamlined way of getting the information you need. And more often than not, it's really time consuming. There's a high risk for error because you only know what to look for and you might not know there are certain local laws that you have to be compliant with too. So what our tech does is it allows you to submit a query, like um, I have an employee requesting uh, paternity leave in Massachusetts, 
and it will start asking diagnostic questions and then analyzes what federal, state, and local employment and labor laws apply to that specific employee. Mm -hmm. It tells you what all of those laws are. It will also tell you what laws are not applicable in this circumstance, just based on the individual. And then it gives very prescriptive step-by-step -step legal guidance of, on everything you need to do to be compliant with those laws. Fill out this paperwork, contact the state agency, provide the employee these notices, if you're doing a reasonable accommodation, we'll walk you through the interactive process for an ADA reasonable accommodation. Um, so it's really there to help first uh, sift out what laws are relevant, what benefits does this person have as a result of the laws that are applicable, and then what do you need to do in order to be compliant. And we have other pieces to our tech as well, an employee handbook builder. There's some automation built in there as well. So when new laws pass or become effective, we'll provide new policies for you to update into your handbook. So it's real time instead of waiting for that once a year review with your lawyer and you realize you've been out of compliance the last nine months. Um, a multi-state comparison tool, policy templates, some administrative forms and employment agreements. And then um, something that was uh, asked of um, was even though we have all this tech, people still want to talk to people. So we have a contact and HR expert function where you can ask questions related to compliance. Sometimes it's actually not related to compliance. It's something HR related elsewhere, but usually it's about compliance. Um, and they will um, talk to an HR expert and and get the advice that they need. That is really cool. It, it sounds like it was a super easy sailing process from you to quitting the job and then moving on to your new business. But I can't imagine it was that easy. Um, the two co-founders of your former company, were they there in, with the investments right from the get-go or did you have to go out and seek? Um, yeah, so I was very, very fortunate. We ended up raising just from friends and family about $900,000. Mm -hmm. And we were able to do a lot of that up front. So I quit my job when we got money in the bank so I could hire people. Yeah, And that's really when we got started. So prior to quitting my job, I was still having conversations with investors and building decks and doing pitches and all that. Um, for a few months, but it wasn't until I got the money in the bank that I, I quit my job and made that change. And we actually had a round that lasted for a year, our pre-seed round. We ended up raising $1.5 million. We had mostly friends and family in the beginning, but then um, four institutions came on toward the end, including Techstars and Sherm Labs, Squadra Ventures, uh, and uh, TEDCO, which is a Maryland technology fund. So they support uh, Maryland-run businesses and and provide some uh, institutional funding for them. That is fantastic. What was the toughest decision that you had to make at the beginning besides quitting your job at the right point? Quitting <laughs> my job was a tough one. It was terrifying, actually. Um, the toughest decision... I think it really surrounded the product. You know, I had no clue what I was doing. Um, and it wasn't until I joined Techstars that I learned a whole lot more. But um, we weren't really talking to HR practitioners when we were building out the product. Because in my mind, I'm like, well, I'm the end user. So we'll just build it out the way I want it to be, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and so it was really hard making some decisions around how we wanted to build out our product roadmap. Did we want to initially integrate from the very beginning? Did we want to do a web-based application? 
Uh, because there were a lot of unknowns, since we weren't talking to our ICP, there were some tough decisions that were made and probably some tech debt um, that we incurred as a result of it. So definitely really great looking back on it and taking that lesson learned. Yeah. So what was the, the, the lesson that you learned when you uh, eventually did talk to one of your potential customers where you thought like, I can't believe that is true. <laughs> well, okay. this, this was, I was very surprised by this, but I thought for sure everybody would want a product that would integrate into their HRIS and we can integrate into an HRIS and it's really cool because we can actually track what people are doing. And then when they're about to make a decision that has a legal consequence, like a termination, for example, or demotion, our chatbot just automatically pops up and says, let's have a conversation. I thought that was so cool. Um, nobody wanted to do the integration. They all wanted a web application. So we had to stop seven months of work and switch over to web-based application. And that's what we've been able to sell. It's been interesting. I've only had a couple people ask me about HRIS integrations. We will definitely go there because I know there's a need for it, especially with larger companies. But today we're selling to small, medium-sized businesses and uh, they just don't want to deal with the integration. So uh, so they've been working with our, our web app, but that was shocking to me. Yeah, the, the funny thing is, uh, we are, as, as I said, we work in, in the benefit and perks uh, area, and uh, we have a web app too, and we are looking to have APIs into HRIS systems. Mm -hmm. And if you do that in Germany, besides all the integration and all that part, everybody's scared of the data, right? Everybody's like, yeah, but what kind of data will you get? Well, whatever you allow us to get, actually, because <laughs> that's what you what you can do in the HRS system. No, I don't believe that. I don't want to have this, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, luckily we haven't done it yet, right? We didn't we didn't cross that bridge yet, but it's uh, yeah, it's definitely not something that we expected as well. That everybody would be so standoffish when it comes to you know that would make it much easier for you guys, right? Yeah, I don't care. It's data. <laughs> Can't do this. <laughs> I think I think one of the ugly secrets, though, is that um, I know in sales, uh, people do a whole lot of their work outside of the CRM and then push it back in. Um, I suspect in, in HR, until you get into a company that really needs compliance, a bunch of people do a lot of work outside the HRIS and then make sure it gets back in there you know, once it's all done. Right. So it's but it, it, I think that's human nature. Let's do it the easiest possible way right or let me do at least the way that i that i like most so yeah. i guess the the question in there jocelyn is is as you've sort of discovered and now talk to more customers and obviously selling the product now what's what's the 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 weird thing that you're like i can't believe people are doing that uh yeah so now that we've been able to really analyze how users are utilizing the product uh the most popular feature is the employee handbook builder, which was surprising to me. I, uh, I mean, I, I hate handbooks and that's probably why they're doing it is because they <laughs> hate handbooks too. Um, but I was very, very excited about the chatbot. And even though the chatbot is really well utilized, the handbook is the most popular feature that we have. And that was pretty surprising to me. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, nice, whatever... Nice whatever takes away uh, from people needing to do the hard work, right? That's where mm -hmm. 
exactly what what they like to do. For us, it's the oh boy, I don't know how to say it in English. There's in Germany, you need a essentially you need a document that needs to be created by a lawyer that really defines what the benefits and the compensation looks like across mm -hmm. the board for all the benefits. Because otherwise, somebody could come and sue and do whatever, right? Because the one employee over doesn't have the same uh, benefits as uh, as you have. Um, so yeah, that needs to be created by a lawyer. Um, there's a certain framework for it, and that seems to be the biggest thing that we are selling right now, right? It's not our bare benefits. It's not our core core products and whatever. It's this little side product that we just kind of adopted because it had to be done. Mm -hmm. is really what people are after and that's that is so funny any other surprises along those along those lines not really no i i expected people to really use the tool the way that they've been using it um i expected the feedback we've been getting there were there's nothing crazy with the feedback that we've received so far it was all pretty standard stuff and just really helpful things that we can do to add to our product more than anything else we haven't had anybody say they don't like something about the product and we have a really great satisfaction score. The most recent one that just came out was a 4.75 out of five. So nice. people are really happy with the product. Um, but there are some really great ideas that are being generated from our customers on what we can do to, to add more functionality to it that I really, really appreciate. We've actually just put together now um, kind of a, a product champion group, so to speak, our most frequent users um, are involved a lot in our beta testing and just kind of providing some feedback to us on what we can be doing to, to uh, improve the product. So it's been good. Yeah, fantastic. That's Russ, do you remember? And I always have to go back. You know, Russ and I used to work in the same company. And in that company, I was, among other things, responsible for the research. And I kept saying to the product team, listen, guys, at the beginning for the first few years, there's nothing you have to do in terms of research. You just have to listen to your customers. They mm. go to tell you what to do, right? Mm. And once they're all satisfied, then you can do your active research and start from there. But a lot of people don't seem to follow that path. Um, so the HR bit runs fantastic. Your product is fantastic. I mean, that that rating is, is really great. Um, but how was it for you to really step behind like do the one skip over in, in Beth where you say it's everything great as long as you're the assistant coach but once you're the head coach everything changes right <laughs> yeah because so the, the life in life in HR always has a fire to put out and always has an issue right but now you're in charge that's a whole other yeah how is that for you yeah, I I really enjoyed it um I'm the oldest of seven kids so I'm naturally very bossy and assertive <laughs> um, so that that helped a lot but uh no I I enjoy it quite a bit so much so that I wonder if I would ever get back into HR actually I love the entrepreneurial journey the people that I've met the challenges that I faced have been really unique um and definitely you know stressful um under no certain terms but um but it's just been an incredible opportunity that I've had to do this and I enjoy all of it. I enjoy being able to um, really 
not just influence, but actually make those decisions on the product roadmap, for example, or a content roadmap, um, decisions with the engineering team on, you know, what type of technology they should be using or with our marketing department on what they should really be talking about and what's most important to HR professionals. So uh, super lucky that I have the HR background and as an industry founder, it definitely puts me in a position where uh, it's a little easier to do this. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I'd go back into HR. <laughs> <laughs> and why would you? Why would I? Yeah, why would you go back to HR? You have I, know, a... I think I would just really have to miss it. You know, I'd have to miss kind of working on the people strategy and working more closely with managers and all that good stuff. Because when you're a CEO, you obviously don't get that same visibility. Um, and you don't get to build those relationships either the same way you do when you're in human resources. So, uh, so that's something I definitely miss and maybe I will go back to that, but we'll see. Uh, okay. Uh, what are the, the, the lessons that you had to learn along the way that you didn't expect? Well, first one I, I mentioned was the product. That was a really big one, not talking to our ICP before actually developing the product. In fact, you know, if I do another company again, before doing a single thing with a product, I will be speaking with our ICP and talking to a lot of them and getting the feedback um, because I, I don't want to um, make that mistake again. So that was a really big one. Um, I think, too, that there are some really great lessons learned on the go-to-market side. Um, getting involved more quickly with partnerships is a really great way to go with HR tech. Um, and I was very focused on direct marketing um, until more recently. And so I wish I'd started the partnership piece sooner. So that's another thing that um, in retrospect, I would like to have done, but partnerships doesn't, not always right for every company. And so we were trying to figure out what worked best for us. So that was another thing. I don't know. I, I think that our financing round went really well. So I don't know if there's anything that I would have done differently i guess um now i just have the opportunity to um do it better the next time because i know more people so uh so that helps you know as somebody who founded their company two weeks ago asking for a friend what was the best message that you had in a financing round how did you position yourself there the best message um so i'm not one for fear marketing i don't really like that Uh, but I think uh, really showcasing the problem that you are solving is incredibly important. And once you get buy-in from your audience, what this problem is and why it's so big and why a solution needs to exist, then explaining the solution from there, you already have that buy-in. Um, and, and I think it's a bit easier to have that conversation from there. So That's what I would suggest focusing on from a messaging perspective. Fantastic. I keep that in mind. <laughs> uh, we are we are just now, un until, I don't know, half an hour ago, I was working on our pitch deck, the first pitch deck, um, when we got in front of investors. And uh, um, yeah, that's going to be interesting. So, and then also asking for a friend, uh, the partnership side, why, what worked so well for you in the partnership side? Well, the partnership side is very new. So we're still having conversations with different potential partners, both strategic partners and referral partners. 
Um, and we've kind of now uh, brought in a fractional head of partnerships who comes from the HR tech space, which is really great. And he's awesome. And, uh, and so we're building out a program and set our KPIs and kind of identified our targets and are moving from there. So it's very new. Up until recently, it was more referral partners from smaller groups like HR consulting firms, for example, where there wasn't a lot of lift that I had to do on my end to make that happen. Part of the reason why we've waited as long as we have is because I've been the one handling sales and Russ knows this because we meet every other Friday to talk about it. I am super overextended. And so I can't focus on every single thing. And partnerships really takes a commitment in building that program and executing against the uh, plans that you've put in place. And so now we're finally at a point where we're able to do that. Yeah. Okay. This The super overextended part, that's... <laughs> that's resonating <laughs> that's resonating yeah. fantastic yeah. you you mentioned uh, you may want to found another company um without knowing anything for sure what would interest you like top two uh actually i have an idea already um and um i won't go into it too much but um it would be focused around hr analytics to drive strategy in the workplace nice i mm -hmm. like that i like that yeah, so it would continue to be HR related until I can get more creative. Right now, I'm just kind of uh, sitting in my comfort zone, which is HR. Yeah, I mean, with the with the breadth of knowledge that you have in that field, right? Why not do more in HR? I'm pretty sure that you have ten ideas where you see like other HR departments could, you know, HR departments or HR people could need help with, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there's a a lot of room for for growth in in different areas and there are definitely some parts of hr like compliance that are underserved today especially in technology so there's a lot of opportunity there too fantastic um if you were to speak to a younger hr starter right now um what would be the top three uh kind of pointers you would give that person like hey these are the three things you really need to focus on or that you need to learn as much uh, about as possible. Yeah, well, I'm very biased as a generalist. I think everybody should start as a generalist and then figure out what they like best. It's kind of like going to law school, you know, you want to, you don't know what type of law you want to practice until you've taken all the classes and figured out what's interesting to you. So, um, so I, I would always recommend that somebody starting start off in a generalist role just to get a feel for all the different pieces of HR. And they might be passionate about continuing in a generalist role, or they might find a huge passion for total reward, and that's great. And then they can move into that. Uh, so that's one thing. I think the other thing, too, is that change management isn't really talked about very often, especially at a lower level in HR. And that's really, really important, especially when you want to be that strategic partner and get buy-in from your organization. Um, the buy-in piece is really key and really helping people understand why there's change, not just why there's change and um, what you're doing to implement that change, but also make them part of that process in identifying what the change should be in the first place. So getting more involved in change management uh, would really set you up for success because not many people out there are focused on it. So. Um, so that's that's another thing. Um, and then the the last thing that I would recommend is really becoming more comfortable um, advising leadership. 
So in a more entry-level role, that might feel intimidating to do. But even if you can do that with a manager level, like at your level or right above you, and practice a lot on how to influence them to make the right decisions for their team, how to coach them through conversations, difficult conversations, especially that they're having with their employees, um, and, and really working with them on handling employee relations issues in a sensitive way is another key thing to focus on too. Fantastic. What would be the, uh, and I'm, I'm getting to the quick, quick hit questions that we have towards the end of it. Um, what would be the, the, the top suggestion that you would have for your younger self? Let's say you're 16 year old self talking to mm -hmm. her. Um, what would your kind of, your advice would, what would that look like? Oh, for my 16 year old self, I would tell myself not to put so much pressure on myself and feel like I needed to apply to 17 different colleges and, you know, be ashamed if I didn't get into all of them. I was really, really hard on myself as a teenager and don't think I appreciated being a teenager as much as I could have. So I'd tell myself to relax a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I get that part. <laughs> I get that part. Okay. Um, go ahead. No, I was going to say the, 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 the question I would have, especially for a young Jocelyn, how would you advise her on being a, a female tech startup, you know, founder? Oh, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because my daughter goes to an all-girls school and the senior class does kind of like a Shark Tank type thing their second semester. And I'm getting involved with that, which I'm really excited about. So I will have the opportunity to actually do this. There you go. Um, and I, I think there are a few key things. Um, don't think that there's no competition because there's always some type of competition out there. And nobody does things the way that we do it. But there are people out there trying to solve the same problem. Um, so always keeping that in mind and then, um, you know, really getting a lot of feedback on your product, especially early on is key if you want to get into starting your own tech startup. Um, so that part is key. And um, really being able to establish yourself as that young professional early on. So if you wanted to start your own tech company at 20 and you're going in front of uh, investors, you're well-spoken, you're polished, you know what you're talking about, you understand your market, um, and, and you understand kind of all the key areas that you'll be focused on as a CEO, like go to market and pricing and all that good stuff. So just being really well prepared is is important. And don't ever think that you're too young to do it because there are plenty of people out there who do. Um, and I would encourage anybody, if you have a good idea, to seek out on LinkedIn or in your personal network, an adult out there who's done it, who can kind of walk you through that, too. That's yeah, I think that is that is one that's one bit that is kind of underappreciated, right? They're reaching out to people um, and really because because I found I had a I had a mentor um, many years ago, and he said even in the sales context, he said asking for help even as a salesperson is absolutely undervalued because mm -hmm. it kind of lowers the walls right that you otherwise get because everybody uh, is being asked for something but it's really help right it's really the i'm not the big sales guy i'm not a salesperson and i'm not you know here here i come it's the 
humble approach, the asking for help and showing what you can't do and try mm -hmm. to get insights, that is something that seems to come come across very well, right? Where, where people yes. have a totally different attitude towards you. Yes, and I think that the, a lot of that comes with maturity and professional maturity. More often than not, a younger person is not gonna ask for help because they don't wanna be seen as incompetent. And it's just, that's just not it. That's that's not how you're seen. You know, you're seen as uh, seeking to understand and self-improving. And um, I have a marketing specialist on my team, 23, just graduated college, and she wasn't asking for help in the very beginning. And so I sat her down and said, this is really important. I don't want you wasting four hours of your day trying to figure this out and then getting it wrong. Talk to us. We won't think that you don't know what you're doing. In fact, we'll think that you do know what you're doing because you're coming and asking for help. So just do it. Yeah, that's the the, the, the funny bit. Um, I'm I'm a bit into basketball, not so much the watching the games, but all the the talk around it. Mm -hmm. And that is something that people keep saying about guys like Kobe Bryant, that he would call everyone at all times in the hour and just ask and ask and ask and ask all those questions right i mean there's this famous bit at uh, at his funeral where michael jordan is standing there and he's like he was a pain in my neck he just wouldn't let go right <laughs> and that's how they became friends eventually because and because he respected that this guy would just keep asking which usually young people much to what you just said, usually young people don't do that, right? Because they see it as a weakness where it's really a strength. And it's, from, from my perspective, it's showing them utmost respect if you ask questions to somebody because you, you cherish their experience and their opinion, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. On that note, speaking to interesting people, if you had to um, come up with a dinner, Invite five people, whoever they are, dead or alive, who would that be? Oh my gosh, it would take me forever to actually give you a real answer on this. <laughs> um, let's see, I would, um, I think Winston Churchill is like the most amazing, iconic person of you know, the 20th century. So we'd definitely invite Winston Churchill. Um, I think Virgil, who's our namesake, the poet, um, would uh, invite him as well. I'd probably invite my grandmother, passed away, uh, really so I could see her again. She probably wouldn't have much to say because she doesn't speak English. And uh, speak? what's that? Which language does she speak? Would she speak Spanish? Yeah. Um, then uh, I... Uh, I think that, um, oh my gosh, what's her, I forget her last name. She's the CEO of Spanx, Sarah something. I forget her last name now. I think she's like an amazing female entrepreneur and I uh, would love to talk to her too. So, uh, so those are some key people I'd probably invite to dinner. Maybe my husband can come. I haven't decided yet. <laughs> Is he like on the on the outside looking in or? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He can just hang out in the living room while we have um, our dinner. Fantastic. Hey, Jocelyn, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. 
Um, I always like to have uh, female entrepreneurs in a show because my wife is uh, is fighting the good fight as well. So I can see what she's struggling with. And so just to go out there and show the good examples that there is other females out there that are doing, really doing a great job and really pushing through um, that class ceiling that somehow seems to be there, but I hope it's gone very soon. So thank you so much for, for sharing your experience, sharing your stories, and um, that I was able to ask a couple of questions for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. It's such a pleasure speaking to both of you. You rest as always. Thanks, and uh, I wish you the best of luck with your new venture. That's exciting. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so much.